listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Okay, Jeff, so I actually have some good news today that I want to share. I actually read the article that you wrote that's inspiring our podcast, so I actually did my homework. Wow. Well done. <laughs> are you impressed? <laughs> First time for everything. Actually, it's a very thought-provoking article, and it had been on my radar since you published it eight months ago or whatever. But actually, I hadn't read the, the pros end-to-end prior, but it had definitely shaped my thinking because when I saw the headline when you wrote it, I went, oh, man, that's a really, really thoughtful comment. So that's what we're going to talk about. So, so in the article, of course, is how content marketing is destroying professional services firms. At least I think that's the title of the article, right? That's the premise of the article. The article is the marketing trend devouring your firm's core business. Okay. So I think where I'd like to start is maybe just outline the hypothesis behind behind what you wrote because because it's a it is a very compelling piece of intellectual capital. So let's dive into the hypothesis first and then talk about in more detail what it means. Okay, I've been in professional services for twenty plus years. Professional services, I mean, they started you know thought leadership marketing and you know this recent trend of content marketing, this fad, I'll call it, uh, the Content Marketing Institute. When I first saw that come out, I laughed um, because professional services firms had been doing this for decades. One might even say over a century. But the premise of the article is that the fact that so many firms are giving away content, it is simply devouring the core business of most professional services firms. And that's relatively straightforward, but who exactly is using it and who's devouring that, I think is probably where we need to spend some time today. Well, before we get there, though, I guess I want to talk about that central notion of, you know, as you said, I mean, I, I always like to point at the advent of thought leadership sort of the moment it became a thing being when McKinsey started publishing McKinsey Corley, that may or may not be true, but, but, but that certainly gives it at least a 60 year shelf life. And if professional services firms have been doing this forever, why is it more of an existential threat now than it would have been 20, 30, 40 years ago? Is it just the pervasiveness that it's, it's now left the professional services sector and gone elsewhere? Or is it the, the fundamental dynamics of our modern economy? Or is it both? I, th- I think it's a little of both. And I think it's the convergence of, of several trends. Maybe I should have said the trends devouring your firm's core business. Mm, yeah. The first one we've, we've touched on, it's content and it's the ubiquity of content. And it's not just content. I hate the word content. It's intellectual capital and firms are firms, companies are giving away what firms used to hold as proprietary. So I think that's, that's one. That's the content mark. The second is the fact that traditional buyers of professional services are looking for solutions to problems. And I think professional services firms have lost sight of the fact that there's any number of ways to solve a problem. Mm. You know, I've been pontificating for years that old marketing adage that people don't buy drill bits, they buy holes. And I think this convergence right now with the content marketing phenomenon reflects this. 
And I saw this when I was at Hewitt and in Genworth Financial as well. At Hewitt, I saw it in the outsourcing business. And buyers that were buying traditional kind of HR and human capital services started wanting to replace those services with software. And when they bought the software, you know, whether that's benefits outsourcing or payroll outsourcing, whatever it is, their expectation, and this was amazing revelation to me at the time, their expectation is I want the best practices that you're exposed to on the consulting side baked into the software that I'm buying. So that I get a two for one and all I have to do is run your best practices software and that's going to help me perform as a company. And I think that phenomenon has accelerated exponentially with the advent of the cloud and this low cost, low barrier to entry software where a functional buyer can now purchase software off the shelf, plug it in, have it work and not have to have these complex, multifunctional IT driven purchase decisions in order to get a problem solved. And so many of the problems today are some combination of you know, great business thinking and process, software and data. This phenomenon is converging in the cloud with software service or managed services or any number of approaches. It doesn't seem to me that it's the content that's itself that's the threat. It's not the idea that the SaaS company is putting out a best practices guide on whatever the topic might be, payroll management, whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's the idea that they've, they've baked the, the advice that the consultant might have rendered into the product as its core capability. You know, I like to tell stories and, and the story I'll tell is this. I think this might echo buyers mind shift changes. So I like to say that we, we've been using SaaS since before SaaS was a thing. So back in 2002, I was looking for a time tracking software, something to track time for our people in-house. And at the time, our mindset on approaching it was we have a process that we use and we need to find a piece of software that will can, is flexible enough to allow us to, to follow our process. If I'm looking for that same software today... I'm looking at it under the lens of I need to find the software that has the best practices on how I should be managing my projects and we'll modify our process to the software. It's a big stretch. I don't know that this is really how buyers buy, but my hunch is that that's kind of what's happened over the last 15 years is that the mindset has just shifted on the client side. And so I totally agree with everything you said. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my, my question then is if there's all this useful content out there, right? And, and the software, well, actually I have two questions. One, one question was, you know, you talked about this moment in time when you first started, saw it happening at Hewitt. Were clients actually directly saying that? I mean, like bluntly saying, we're replacing this outsourced service with this piece of software. I mean, did that actually happen? Did you see that sort of direct buying behavior occur? Yes. Really? Yes. And I think it came from, from both directions. The first, I should say, is from the buyer reflecting this back to the company around its problems and how they want them solved. And I already touched on that. The second, and I think this really was born out of the second generation Hewitt 
after they had a real rough time consuming Exalt and a new management team was brought in, that the management team's philosophy was, how can we annuitize the consulting services by converting okay. software and the consulting? So we started looking at acquisitions and in-house services, consulting services we already had that we could combine with software to achieve that end. And, you know, there were multiple things that were just kind of niche types of solutions that were easy to plug and play and move on. So it was inside and out that moved that firm in that direction. I have a hypothesis and tell me if you think I'm crazy. I think that what's really happening is that the point in time in which consulting services are purchased is moved. So years ago, you'd hire a consultant to give you advice on what technology you should run. Now you buy a piece of software and then you buy consulting services after the software purchase to teach you how to use it. I mean, all this software looks looks brilliant on the surface. I mean, it all looks like it's got the best practices baked in, but but it's almost impossible to, to just turn it on and, and it'll do what it's saying it can do until you actually customize it to your own unique use case. And that usually requires help. Right. I don't know. You think I'm crazy, but did the consulting relationship just shift from the consulting firm to the software company and move to later in the buying process or later in the journey? I think that's a very astute observation. And I think you're spot on. I'll take it one step further because I think this is the phenomenon and the opportunity that exists right now. I have several large SaaS clients, primarily in risk management. How they approach risk management is from different purviews within the risk management market. One is environmental health and safety. The other one is primarily claims administration, but also kind of broad-based risk management and safety as well, but more general, not as specific as environmental health and safety. And within the software firms, there are these incredible intellectual thought leaders that have, out of just intellectual curiosity or product development, delved deeply into the data that the SaaS systems are producing. Mm. And they are doing very advanced analytics across these things. One for product development, but the most progressive firms are seeing an opportunity to really bring industry-leading points of view around the outcome that these softwares are driving. And they're collaborating with their clients in really unique ways. And even blowing some of these great clients using the software out of the water with how they're repurposing the data coming out of these systems that are having impacts in other areas of the business, not just, you know, what enhancement could we add to the next version of this software? And the best firms are exploiting that from, you know, a value add perspective. Either it makes the software relationship more sticky or they're setting up new standalone lines of business that are consulting around those areas. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. 
If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. I just thought of this as you were talking is, is that part of the risk to the professional services firm, which is that quite frankly, as a software company, if I can get you using my software and doing it successfully, I've got a a long-term annuity with this. Hence, maybe I'll give the consulting services away or, or I'll certainly give them away at a lower fee than maybe the, you know, the, the consulting firm might have charged. Is that a risk as well? I think very much so. I mean, these SaaS companies yeah. are driven by subscriptions and it's very expensive to acquire clients. So once they've acquired a client, they want to reduce the churn. And that's why I say anything they can do to make that relationship sticky, they want to do it. You know, I think one of the best at this is a SaaS provider in, you know, the space we play in, in, in marketing. And that's HubSpot. You know, they kind of created the whole inbound methodology. And if you spend any time on their site as a marketer, they have these incredible resources to help you optimize an inbound marketing approach. And I think. I- the the lower end of the value i i mean don't don't get me wrong here jason that's lower end of the value chain in this space because you can give somebody a template or a blog post or a guide but that doesn't mean that it gets applied because so many of these solutions that you and i work on with these companies it's not a matter of marketing knowledge it's it's an ability to facilitate change right? To navigate the political waters that exist in the firm and build coalitions and and move the firm in a particular strategic direction. And no piece of content does that, right? That's human to human interaction. And that's the value that higher end firms provide. Well, I think the interesting, you know, the interesting story in HubSpot, well, I'll just tell a brief story, at least from my experiences with them over the last six or seven years. They have a very aggressive channel program, meaning that they, they aggressively went after acquiring agencies to use their software. And then of course, recommend it and refer it into their clients and help their clients use their software. And of course, as part of that, they, it's a train the trainer mentality, right? So they're training the agency on how to use their software. Yeah, I, I've engaged with them at two or three points in time over the last six or seven years. And I've also worked with, you know, the sort of the leading advisors to, you know, so management consulting type advisors to this industry. So I I know those folks fairly well as well, who have been keynote speakers at, at HubSpot's signature event. And the thing I noticed over that period is that the advice that is is generally provided for a fee by the expert consultants in this industry has slowly found its way into HubSpot's client success program. So if you engage with HubSpot's client success program now, a lot of what the, the, the salesperson or account manager is guiding you through is a lot of the thinking that's been put out by the, the leading consultants in the industry for a very long time. Now, I would argue they're not doing it as well as the, the consultants who crafted their thinking in the first place, because how could they, right? But mm-hmm. but it doesn't really matter. On some level, they're sort of end arounding that, right? They're taking all that intellectual capital that was developed by those really, really talented industry experts and then baking it in not only to their software, but baking it into their 
their client success model. And it's pretty fascinating to, to have, again, as, as someone who has not been engaged in the HubSpot community straight on for seven straight years or whatever, or 10 straight years, as, as some agencies have, as someone who's kind of come in and out of that community mm-hmm. at various points in time and watching kind of the maturity of, of their thinking on the community, it's pretty fascinating. You know, a question I have for you, and you may not know the answer because I, I know I don't know the answer, is... We know that this notion of content-driven marketing is pervasive in marketing software. And we also both know that the landscape of marketing software has exploded dramatically over the last seven or eight years to a, a impalpable noise that will probably, you know, a, a whole bunch of companies will get whacked off in, in, a, in a recession eventually. And we also know that fintech, ops tech, all these other different kind of categories of tech have also had equally large-scale explosions around just all this new cloud technology. I'm wondering, are they following the same playbook? I mean, the, the, the playbook of the MarTech is, is certainly the content marketing model. Are, are the fintech companies, you know, your risk tech clients, you know, are, are they all following that same content playbook or are they using a different strategy? From my perspective... And I don't know the answer. Uh, they're all using the same playbook. Yeah. And I, I believe it's built out of necessity, you know, form follows function. Most of these SaaS companies, you know, have a low barrier to entry in terms of setting up, you know, software in the cloud. And there's a race for market share and they need to, you know, control their burn rate. And when, you know, 60, 70 percent of the buying decision is made online before a sales rep even gets a call, it lends itself to a content marketing model to keep that cost per lead as low as possible. And it's just done out of necessity. You you need volume because of the churn, because it's subscription, and you can't have a high-priced salesperson, you know, spending days or months closing, you know, the deal sizes that they have here. They need to be able to churn with very little human interaction. And that's why the content marketing is, is so in, important. Yeah. I asked the question because, again, I don't feel like I know the answer. I haven't studied fintech that well or the other categories. But, but, but my sense is that the dynamics that we're describing, you know, kind of, I think, at least for, for both of us anyway, in terms of the mental frame of reference, start within the market, at least for me, start within the marketing, since I shouldn't speak for you, in the marketing genre. But it would seem that it, any advisory practice has some exposure here. You know, if you're providing financial services advice, if you're providing risk management advice, if you're providing organizational design advice, I mean, any one of these things that, that could be exploited by software has some, some exposure to this sort of new competitive threat. Absolutely. And in the article that I wrote, I outline, you know, some of the ubiquity of SaaS solutions by function. And uh, you can see that in the article. But, you know, I saw this at Genworth Financial, you know, less than a decade ago. Financial services has really commoditized. You see a huge movement out of, you know, traditionally managed funds into index funds. Because people have just finally said, hey, it's so rare to beat the market. Just give me the market returns, right? You don't need a financial advisor for that. You know, that's an algorithm. That's software and it's low cost. And Vanguard, I just saw in the Wall Street Journal the other day, went from 
just around a trillion dollars of assets over the last couple of years to over five trillion in assets. <laughs> and you're just seeing roll up after roll up after roll up of broker dealers and financial advisory services in that space because it's commoditized and it can be handled by software. And a firm like Dimensional with, you know, two of their principals just won a Nobel Prize for, you know, the algorithm they built into their investment model. You know, we already mentioned HR, the accounting's coming. You know, I have an accounting client who's built their entire practice around cloud software and they target nothing but small business. And, you know, you would think small businesses want a lot of handholding around their accounting, right? My accountant, I want to talk to my accountant. (laughs) You know, they just want to keep costs low and easy to do business with, and they don't want to get in trouble, right? With the IRS or cash flow and you know, they're on with it. So I think every industry with, you know, some kind of advisory arm is seeing this phenomenon. Well, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, it feels like a pretty good place to stop. And I think it's, it's almost like this podcast stops with the classic Mark Anderson refrain, which is software is eating the world. And you're either in it or not, I guess. I would also say real quick, the article that was the impetus for this discussion is is a, is a really, really thought-provoking piece. And I think in terms of just sort of explaining the dynamics and how they're coming together to create either this risk or opportunity, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, every firm that has a long view needs to be to, to take a good read on that article and have serious leadership discussions about what this means to their practice. So anyway, great discussion. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jason. Talk next time. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Go, go, go.